And it's no surprise what I'm going to be talking about tonight, given the theme of our retreat and how we're unfolding these teachings. My topic tonight is the second noble (coughs) truth, which states very bluntly that the cause of suffering, of dukkha, and as Carol said last night, many ways to understand that word, is craving, is wanting. If we step back a bit and look at this formulation of the Four Noble Truths, it's an interesting kind of pedagogical uh, outline. Um, Usually when we talk about cause and effect, which we often do, and in the Buddha's teachings he's often talking about cause and effect. The whole wheel of dependent origination and karma is about cause and then effect. But the sequence in the Four Noble Truths is actually effect-cause, effect-cause. The first noble truth of dukkha is the effect of the cause of craving. The third noble truth of the possibility of freedom, of nibbana, of awakening, is the effect of the cause of the Eightfold Path. So it's interesting how the Buddha um, frames the truths, but I think he does it, who knows, if he does it this way. (laughs) My sense is it works because he starts with the ouch, He starts with, this hurts. You know, life is inherently unreliable and unsatisfactory. And if we're looking for happiness in the things of this world, we're going to keep causing ourselves suffering. And all of us are here in one way or another because that truth resonates for us. When we heard it for the first time, we kind of realized, oh, that makes sense. That's why life is so difficult. Why... I or my loved ones or this, the, the world struggles so much. So this is the um, way he approaches these teachings. And the Buddha is often described as a doctor, and we are all his patients. And so he diagnoses the illness, dukkha, suffering. He looks to see what's its cause. How did you get this illness? What's going on here? Let me examine you. Does it hurt when I press here? Yes, that hurts. Um, so the cause and then he says there's a cure you know you can be completely free of this illness of this diagnosis what's the treatment the eightfold path and so it's a sort of beautiful image as the as the buddha as this great physician who's prescribing for the ills of all humanity and the second noble truth his uh, diagnosis of the cause of suffering is Tanha, or craving. In the text it says, Now this bhikkhus is the noble truth of the origin of suffering. It is this craving which leads to renewed existence, accompanied by delight and lust, seeking delight here and there, that is, craving for sensual pleasures, craving for existence, craving for extermination or non-existence. And I'll go into all of these through the talk. But just to start with this, fundamental term that's being used here, tanha, literally means thirst. But John Peacock, who's an English scholar, Buddhist scholar, says craving, as it's usually translated, doesn't convey the pathos of the Pali word tanha, which means unquenchable thirst. And a bit like dukkha, there's a range of meanings in this word that simply describing it or translating it as a craving doesn't meet. It's this um, wanting that's never satisfied, this desire, attachment. And of course, as soon as we talk about wanting, and we think, you know, the second number is craving, it includes not wanting. Because as soon as you put something in the category of this I want, there's this category of this I don't want. Even if you're actually in relationship mainly to what you don't want, you have to grab a hold of it, right? Even to push it away, there has to be that relationship. So even as I talk about grasping, know that it includes also the aversion and the pushing away. They're just two sides of the same coin. And Ajahn Suchito, who was just here at Vaisitos for a month, led probably what was a fabulous retreat, he's a great teacher, says, Tanha, meaning thirst, is not a chosen kind of desire. It's a reflex, you know, like hitting your knee. It's the desire to pull something in and feed on it, the desire that's never satisfied because it just shifts from one sense space to another, from one emotional need to the next, 
from one sense of achievement to another goal. It's the desire that comes from a black hole of need, however small and manageable that need actually is. So just talking about this sort of the momentum that we can experience in this force of wanting, of desire, because it comes from a black hole of need, never satisfied. And as uh, the other teachers have pointed out, um, these truths are not just dogma, philosophical tenets, things to be believed. If you're a card-carrying Buddhist, you have, have them in your pocket and you pull them out and go, yep, the Four Noble Truths, t- check that off. They're, they have three aspects, and they're really a call to action. They're a call for us to understand them and to do a particular form of practice. So for the second noble truth, we need to recognize or understand, bring uh, into awareness that the origin of suffering is craving, to, to know that for ourselves. The practice is, this craving is to be abandoned, let go of, um, finished, And then the Buddha, in his awakening, said, craving has been abandoned. And for all of us, there is that possibility. Not ultimately, Guy will talk more about that tomorrow night, that's what the Buddha did, he put down that burden. But to know this, even temporary, letting go, the craving is to be abandoned, and that to know when we have let it go and what that feels like what that feels like when we're actually not so caught. So the call is to explore and understand craving, not to you know, say it's bad and wrong and hold it at arm's length and run away as fast as we can, but actually to bring it close, not really to bring it close, it's here to, understand, to explore it. So Saito Tejaniya says, Do not be led by greed. Take time to learn a little about greed. Pay attention to its characteristics. If you keep falling for greed, you will never understand its nature. So we need to be mindful of it. As Ajahn Sumedha will always say, you have to know greed to know non-greed. You have to know craving, as in explore it, know its texture. How does it feel? How does it operate? To truly know non-craving. So this is our practice. <coughs> A little while ago, I read this book. Uh, I recommend called Hooked, Buddhist Writings on Greed, Desire, and the Urge to Consume. And it's edited by Stephanie Kaza, and the, the front image if I'm, is a big, like, fish hook. And it just, you know, all of those ways, we get trapped again and again. The desire, the on greed, desire, and the urge to consume. And she says, the human des- drive to want more and more things comes from a deeply felt sense of lack. Buddhist philosopher David Loy has called this lack a basic character of our human existence in this phenomenal world. Our activities in this world are motivated largely by the need to fill in this inherent lack we feel at the heart of our being. And we really need to kind of understand this to... Uh, what comes to mind is respect. Respect the force of greed. It's so deep. Uh, if you know anything about Buddhist cosmology, there's these different realms, the human realm, the heavenly realms, the animal realm. There's a really interesting realm called the realm of the praetas. These are, it's translated as hungry ghosts. And in this realm, the beings have really big bellies, very thin necks, big heads, and little tiny mouths. And it's said that they can never stuff enough in these little tiny mouths down these little thin necks to fill this big belly. So they're endlessly hungry, endlessly seeking. And we can feel like that too. You know, when when we're operating often, mainly unconsciously, from this sense of lack, we're always looking, as Sachito says, to draw things in, to pull things in, to somehow fill that. And we live in a culture that celebrates greed, right? That mantra from that movie, greed is good. You know, a whole culture built around capitalism and the only way you survive is to get more and to grow and to expand and to increase and to charge more. This is the culture we live in. The advertising world feeds on this, right? 
I saw an ad a while ago, I think it was in Outdoor Magazine, for Subaru, the favorite car of mountain people. Um, And it had a guy with his beautiful new Subaru, just surrounded by all this stuff. You can imagine, he's a Durango type of person, I would think. You know, he's got a kayak and skis and a bike and, you know, balls and three different kinds of skis and backpacks. And the tagline was, to be one with everything, you have to have one of everything. (laughs) That's the message we get, right? Even in uh, Subaru. And then just recently I saw this ad by AT&T. It was meant to be cute, but it was really disheartening. They had a bunch of kids and they were asking them these questions. And the questions were things like, which is better, to do one thing or two? To go fast or go slow? To have more or less? And of course the kids were like, more, better, you know, two is... And to see from that early age, this message is being instilled that fast is better, more is better, two is better than one, whatever it is. And so this is the, what we grow up in. You know, I didn't look up this statistic. It said we're impacted each day by something like 6,000 messages, right, of, of things that people are trying to sell us. Again, in this book, Hooked, uh, Stephanie Kaza writes that the author Bill McKibben, you know, the uh, 350 guy who's doing such good work uh, for the planet, once did the experiment, and this is self-sacrificing, once did the experiment of watching every minute of television that was aired on a single day by the largest cable system at the time. He concluded that the central theme repeated on ad after ad was this, you are the most important thing on earth. Can this really be the orientation of our times? In place of caring for others, look out for yourself. Instead of communing with God or nature, surf the shopping channel. McKibben calls this, and in quotes, idolatry, as in worshipping the I, worshipping the self and everything I need and want. The extreme self-referencing fostered by the profiteers of consumerism. So it's understandable we bite, we get hooked, we, we grow up with this message and it's, it's what we live in. And there's very little supporting the opposite. Simplicity, renunciation. There was a magazine, I don't know, is it, did it survive? Was it called Simplicity or something like that? Or Simple Living, maybe? Simple Living. And it was full of glossy things you could buy to live more simply, you know? Or if you really want to live simply, you need to have these bamboo you know, placemats or what, you know. It's just that's the nature of society. The challenge for us is, as a noble truth, that desire, craving, can be hard to recognize as suffering or the source of suffering because it's so beguiling, right? It feels good to want. You know, the object feels beguiling. Um, Sharon Salzberg tells this great story about being in a bazaar somewhere in Asia and someone calling out from her from one of the stalls, I have what you need. And what, you know, if you hear that, I have what you need, you're like, do you? What, what do I need? What is that? I want that. But this is a message we're getting all the time. I have what you need. This is what you need. And so from that, we think, again, most of the time unconsciously, but we act out of this, there's something out there that's going to satisfy us that's going to be the thing, the one, the person, the experience, the possession, the job, the career, the car, whatever it is. And again, we've tried this right already, but we still believe, oh, it wasn't quite the right thing. You know, the iPhone, I always do iPhones because they're so much a source of lust for people. I don't even have one, but what was the last one? You know, the five. When it came out, wasn't it? The people lined up, you know, for miles to get. Now it's like, oh, you can buy them for $10, you know, oh, the six or whatever. I don't even know what the latest one is. Oh, this one is going to have all the apps and do, do what you want. And so we live in that illusion. All, all the time. And what it is, is it's object-oriented, right? And whenever I say object, I include experience, I include people, but it's outward-oriented to the thing. That's where the happiness is. I just have to get that. I can't be happy until, unless I have that. And, you know, when I say it out loud, it seems kind of crass and, oh, I don't, you know, have those thoughts. 
but we act that way, right? I see myself do it. Um, anytime our current experience isn't good enough, and how often is that? Could be better, the grass is greener kind of thing. You're sitting, oh, I can't wait till we get out and walk and be in the fresh air. You start walking, this is so boring, and I, it's insects and I'm getting bitten, I wish I could go. You know, the mind, uh, Carol was talking about, these alternations, the basketball game. Just this is what happens. What we start to see when we look is that desire is never completely satisfied by the acquisition of the object. There may be a temporary lull in that force, but how quickly does it move to the next thing? How quickly does the iPhone 6 become old hat? Whatever it is. I saw this poem a little while ago in The New Yorker by Kurt Vonnegut, who I didn't know wrote poetry. It's, it's really more of a, pro, a short piece of prose, but it's called, called it a poem. Starts. It's called Joe Heller. It's a name. True story, word of honor. Joseph Heller, important, an important and funny writer, now dead, and I were at a party given by a billionaire on Shelter Island. I said, Joe, how does it make you feel to know that our host only yesterday may have made more money than your novel Catch-22 has earned in its entire history. And Joe said, I've got something he can never have. And I said, what on earth can that be, Joe? And Joe said, the knowledge that I've got enough. Not bad, rest in peace. The knowledge that I've got enough. A billionaire doesn't have that. You know, think of those people who have so much. Are they ever satisfied? You know, the story of Rockefeller, I think it was Rockefeller, when someone asked, how much is enough? And he said, just a little more. You know, just to be more than the next guy who's nipping at my heels. So there's always some new object, some new challenge. Again, this is hooked in the book. Taking a panoramic view of human history and contemporary global culture, we can identify several areas wherein human beings have sought and continue to seek this elusive happiness. In short, human history has been propelled in great part by the pursuit of three basic desires. The desire to possess, the desire to know, and the desire for thrill and sustained pleasure. This is what's driven humanity throughout history. And as individuals, we can see our search for all of these, right? Objects, possessions, um, knowledge, wisdom, and the desire for pleasure, for thrills. When we are beguiled by these, we only see what's positive about them. The Tibetans have this great saying, uh, desire puts feathers on things. And it makes it, it makes it look pretty. You know, they, that's how they you know, beautify something. I'll stick some more feathers on it. That's what we do. Oh, it's beautiful. That's so good. I want that. We don't, we don't see the drawbacks or the limitations of whatever it is we're contemplating getting. Classic example, traveling. You know, you see these ads, newspaper, internet, whatever, magazines, you know, the beautiful images of food and vistas, or our own memories. Even in our own memories, when you contemplate traveling again, this is going on some kind of tour, you know, through whatever, Europe or Asia, whatever you might want to do. Um, you, never, you forget, right, the sore feet, the getting lost, the not knowing what to eat or where to eat, the confusing directions, um, having to make decisions, arguing with your companions about where you should do or what you should, where you should go or what you should do. We forget that, right? There's this image that pulls us in that seems so beguiling. It's, it's like infomercials. Not that, you know, it's not that I go and watch them, but every now and then you, you see one and there's always the person sort of, wiping the sweat from their brow and they're trying to cut something with some blunt knife or, you know, grind something and it's like they're back in the Stone Age and then then there's this object, right? And they're whizzing and grinding and blending and smiling and it's, but wait, there's more, you know? And this is the story of desire, you know? There's something out there that's going to do what we want it to do and it's not the truth. 
a little while ago I needed a new computer. You know, you get to that stage, it's getting slower and slower and more and more full. It would have that red bar that says, you know, you have no space left to do any new thing. So, And I love gadgets, so I thought this would be great. I get to buy a new computer. It's been about four years. What's happened in computers, laptops, start exploring. But then there's, what do I get? Which company? Everyone you research has you know, the hell realm of all of the problems that people have had and the (laughs) negative reviews and then, you know, but you have to choose one. You know, they all sound terrible. You have to buy it from somewhere. And then which aspects, which computer chip and memory and all of it. So something that seems like it should have been pleasant is this, all of these confusion. And finally, I made a decision about, you know, what I should get. So I call up, you know, this and this and this, and the guy takes it down, and and then he says, no, we don't have those. Don't know when they'll be available. It's like I've, you know, been researching for weeks and looking at what's available. For some reason, I called up the next day and spoke to someone else. They said, oh, yeah, we have those. I can ship one out to you tomorrow. It's like, oh, oh, okay. You know, so that's what it's, we think it's going to be this sort of perfect arc of, you know, buying and, and getting. And then the computer comes, and what's the next five days like? Trying to get the damn thing set up and swap all the programs over and load the stuff up and the instructions don't work. We have this idea it's going to be just happiness. And even if we get the thing we want, it's unsatisfactory. It's suffering. I read a a book a while ago. I really like Temple Grandin. She's an autistic woman who um, has used the way she understands the world to help her understand animals. So she's become a very well-respected animal behaviorist. And this book was called Animals in Translation. And she talks about how all animals, and, and the good thing about it when she said animals, she includes us, right? Because we're animals, we're mammals, have uh, that curiosity, interest, and anticipate, anticipation is a core, she calls it emotion, I guess it's an emotion, and she calls it seeking. And you see it in every being that's out there trying to survive. The robins, you know, plucking the bugs and the worms from the ground, and we have a little robin's nest right under the stairs in our lodge where we're staying. Like, oh, and she's there feeding every day. Actually, they both are. I should give you where it's due. They're both there. When it started to rain, I said, I bet she goes out there and sits on them. And I went out and looked, and there she was. Anyway, different aside. Um, The seat, you know, food. It's our basic core interest, right? And then all of the other drives that we had. But she said that animals, and I hate these experiments, but she's reporting, I'm just telling you what she said. Animals that can control having the seeking part of the brain stimulated, and they do this kind of with rats, they can press a lever or something, will turn it on until they're totally exhausted. Mm -hmm. It's so beguiling, that need to hunt, to look, to find, to seek. And it's all about, it's also curiosity, what's around the next corner? I have that guy saying, can we stop now? Just around the next corner. Just can we keep going till we see, and around the next corner, what is there? Another corner, another hill. So this is what our experience is. Um, Always looking, always searching. Always, there's cultures offering us something new we should want, in fashion, in music, you know, cars. The thing I've seen that sort of drives me a little crazy... I don't know if you know, there's a whole sub-industry on air fresheners. I don't use them at all, but I kind of look and go, what? You know, so first there was just the simple ones. I don't even know what they were. You know, they had some waxy stuff, and then it was candles, and then it was the things with reeds or something in them. They were trendy. And then they motorize, and there's ones I've seen now where you plug them in, they have a little fan and a sensor, and someone walks in the room, and they're like, <laughs> and shoot out this smell at you. It's like, how about opening the window? Or what this artificial scent? But it, it's you can see how it's built, and it's like, oh, people have gotten tired of that. Let's add these feathers on this thing. So all of it, you know, it's not bad. And I'll talk about to want things, to be curious. We wouldn't be here unless we were curious, unless we wanted to understand, unless we wanted to know. But we need to bring discriminating wisdom to this strong tendency. What do we actually need? 
in our lives? And what is truly beneficial? This is the deep question. And for us as meditators to actually turn the attention from that outward seeking to get interested in the force of desire itself rather than the object that's out there. The Buddha said that chasing after desires is like drinking salt water. Salt water can never satisfy your thirst, but only increases it. Because as he said, the more we get, the more we want. It's inexhaustible. So as it says in the text, um, the Buddha uh, talked about three main types of desires, ways desire manifests. Um, the first one is the desire for sensual pleasures, kama tanha. And this is K-A-M-A, not K-A-M-M-A, which is the law of cause and effect of action, karma. Kama tanha, seeking delight, now here and now there. And so, you know, it's a very evocative image, seeking delight. Now, it's that curiosity, it's that seeking, where is it, where is it, where is it? So as I was thinking about giving this talk, I was really trying to feel into what's that like energetically? What kind of comes to mind as I think about that seeking delight and how we do that? You know, as we go through our day, where's the pleasure? Where's the hit? Where's the thing I like? The place to sit or the food or whatever. And what I um, thought of before Carol mentioned it last night was a sea anemone. You know, and if you know there are some types that are kind of long and elongated, long double thing, <laughs> long, and they have little things, tentacles. tentacles at the end, but they're just basically swaying, trying to catch whatever's going by. Now, of course, we're more active than that. We go out and get the stuff, right, from very early on, as in day one, being born, what loomed in front of us? The big breast, right? And what was our first... You know, if we survived because we did this, right? We latched on and we said, I want that. It was the source of life. And of course, as soon as there's breast or bottle or whatever it was that sustained you, there's non-breast, right? There's the things you don't want when that's absent. The howling baby, where is it? I want that. This is very early on. We're, we're like that. So again, we're more active than the anemone, but you can kind of get that whatever it is that you imagine that's kind of, you know, this seeking curiosity, swaying, but we're we're grasping that. And, you know, as Carol said, I think the analogy she was using about the anemone was when something touches it that it's afraid of, and that retraction, that's the not wanting. You know, the run away, run away, the fear, the anger, the aversion. But it's out of that same mode or, or whatever. And so... The way we're, well, the way we often think about this is, you know, there's this self, there's me, there's Sally, and what I'm doing is going out there in the world and getting what I want to satisfy myself. But actually, I, I heard a really interesting twist on this that I think is more true. So we think that the self creates the grasping or does the grasping, but Andy Olensky says, that actually the grasping creates the self. He said, what becomes clear, Andy Olensky's a Buddhist scholar, helped found the Barry Center for Buddhist Studies near IMS. What becomes clear through this analysis of moment-to-moment experience is that grasping is not something done by the self, but rather self is something done by grasping. The self is constructed each moment for the simple purpose of providing the one who likes or doesn't like, holds on to or pushes away whatever is unfolding in experience. I really like this as a way of understanding what is happening because what we start to see when we look what the Buddha kept pointing to is there isn't a solid self there. There's nothing permanent. Self is a verb. Self is a process. Self selfs. So we talk about selfing. We're engaged in this process to, and grasping shapes the self to get what we want. And this process leads to the other two types of craving. The first one is for becoming, bhava tanha. 
And when we talk about this, to, we do this kind of becoming to get what we want. And again, these are not just objects I'm talking about here when I'm talking about craving. It can be to be loved or respected or seen or liked or fit in, to fit in. These are all things we can crave. And I was talking to someone today trying to find metaphors to talk about this role of grasping in the self and what I came up with. And I said, I like this, so I'll use it. It's like the hand in the puppet. And the craving is the hand, the thing that's actually moving it. The self is the shape of the puppet that gets put on top. And puppets come in all kind of variety. You know, the Muppets, all the shapes, or Punch and Judy, or, you know, very creative. But it's the hand inside that's moving the puppet, right? The, the, the self is just this thing on top that's manifesting in order to get what grasping, what craving wants. If we see it in this way, there's a fluidity to it that's actually, for me, more workable because we can start to see this process that we're engaged in all the time. All of the bhavatanha, the becoming, the selves we create in a day, a good meditator, a bad meditator, a sleepy meditator, a clear meditator, you know, a mother or a daughter or a friend or a lover, a good person or a bad person, a kind person, a compassionate person, a sad person. You know, and we don't label it so clearly, but we take on these identities. And just as the puppet looks and acts differently depending on the persona it's taken on, this is how we engage with the world out of this sense of self. Even as simple as liking or not liking something creates a sense of self, identity. Mm-hmm. We shape around that. And almost the same with the opposite, vibhavatanha which is the not-wanting existence. In the text it said um, extermination. Seems a bit harsh, really. Um, But it's all of the wishing away uh, for non-existence. And that can be, you know, even when we hide, I don't know if you're an introvert. I am an introvert. And often if I see someone coming, it's like, oh, can I just duck down, you know? And that's vibhavatana, not wanting to be seen, not wanting to be present, not wanting to show up. It can, you know, really deepen into um, self-annihilation, really wishing away the self, you know, in extreme forms could be suicide. But we can take it on a more moment-to-moment level as when we don't like parts of our experience, wanting to push those away, parts of ourselves, not liking who we are or how we are in the world. I don't like... My, this aspect of my experience, I wish it were gone. I don't like, you know, this my anger or my fear or my sadness. All of the self-judgment around I'm not good enough, I'm not basically okay. That's vibhavatanha. And it's out, it's interesting to see, it's just the flip side of the craving in the pushing away. It's the same energy, the same movement of mind. So our practice is to explore this. This can be known, as Sumedho says, we can know craving and to know non-craving. And as Carol said, all of this talk about craving is not to deny that there are pleasures in the world. Buddha said, there is delight in the world. But as she said last night, if we perceive those pleasures unwisely, if we don't understand their nature, if we relate to them unwisely, we end up in this cycle of suffering thinking that that's what's going to bring us to happiness. What we start to actually see is the ease or the well-being comes not from getting the object, but from the force of desire itself diminishing, or even momentarily being totally absent, knowing what that's like. So not the attaining of the object. And retreats are a great place to explore that because... There's not a lot to be had here. There's just what's here, right? The basics are taken care of, but fairly rustic, fairly simple. You know, the conditions are good. The nature is beautiful. And it'd be interesting to see the craving about that. I've got to go for a walk. I haven't climbed that peak or seen that part of the river. You know, we can have craving for something like nature, definitely. So we notice that. Um, So watch what the mind does. But... There is a simplicity here that's really instructive for us. What we what we truly need, you know, to be happy. A while ago, I, I was talking to a monastic about, 
craving and renunciation said, oh, it must be so much easier for you as a monastic. You're so constrained, you know, by your vows. And he said, oh, no. He said, we have the same force of desire. It just falls on fewer objects. And it was, you know, kind of, um, I don't know, I don't know, it wasn't really reassuring, but just honest of him, humble of him to admit that, you know, though those forces are still at work. But as I said, the wisdom of the Buddha's teachings is to see the desire as separate from the object. They're usually so conjoined that we don't realize what's happening. You put feathers on the object, we want it, and we don't see how we're being led um, by the nose in our chase after that object, that experience, even that sense of ourselves as being a good person or liked or lovable or whatever. So it doesn't mean that we can't enjoy things, appreciate beauty, food, whatever it is, relationships, love. But we just need to understand their nature and their limitations. This is what we have to do. So, as I said, as it says in the text, the practice with the second noble truth is that the cause of suffering is to be abandoned or let go of or relinquished. Not out of aversion. This is not, you know, the world is terrible, I should give up everything and go uh, climb into a, a cave. But just seeing for ourselves how it causes suffering. And when we start to see that, there's a natural letting go. If you pick up a hot coal, someone doesn't have to tell you you should let that go, right? There's a natural letting go. We start to see for ourselves that the objects don't do it. What we're actually yearning for is some deeper sense of well-being and contentment. And so we can bring mindfulness to the experience itself. You can feel it in the body, you know, a little bit before lunch, is there a little kind of, oh, I hear the sounds of food, you know, cooking or the smells, and this little leaning forward, even if it's not actually happening, but you know that. You know, James Barra is one of our friends we teach with, we'll often have people sort of pretend something's out there and reach for, you know, we can feel that sort of, it's an up and out, this leaning forward. We can watch the mind and the stories it tells us about how happiness is to be found in solving that problem, in telling that person what they need to hear, in getting that object, getting that job, that experience. When you notice that kind of mind state is present, let yourself drop into the body and feel what that's actually like. What it's often actually like is somewhat agitating. There's an energy to that that if we're sensitive... We feel it as agitation. We can feel the um, separation of here there's lack, here there's insufficiency, and out there is the thing. And so we're operating from a place of insufficiency. You can feel the agitation in all the strategizing, the organizing, and the planning, and how to get and do and have and be whatever it is that we want. Feel into that. And see if that's actually happy. It's usually not. And we also need to understand that there are different kinds of desire. Sari asked this question the other day about different kinds of desire. We wouldn't be here if we didn't have desires. Desire to be in Vaisitas, in these beautiful surroundings. Desire to practice. Desire to wake up, to be more free, to be less stressed more compassionate, more understanding. These are all desires. But they can be skillful desires, onward-leading desires. And I talked the other day about um, kamachanda is, again, this word kama, kamatanha, is craving for sense pleasures. Pleasures, kamachanda, desire for sense pleasures. Chanda is a word meaning desire. Dhammachanda, desire for the dhamma. This is what we all have, and we need it. We wouldn't continue on this path if we didn't have that as a real uh, aspiration for ourselves. Tanasaru Bhikkhu, who writes, a scholar and translator, um, says it's important to discern the difference between skillful and unskillful desires. He said, if a desire doesn't really produce happiness, it contradicts its reason for being. And he says... All phenomena, the Buddha once says, are rooted in desire. 
all phenomena are rooted in desire. Everything we think, say, or do, every experience comes from desire. Even we come from desire. We are reborn into this life because of our desire to be, bhavatanha. Consciously or not, our desires keep redefining our sense of who we are. Desire is how we take our place in the causal matrix of space and time. The only thing not rooted in desire is Nibbana, for it's the end of all phenomena and lies even beyond the Buddha's use of the word all. But the path that takes you to Nibbana is rooted in desire, in skillful desires. The path to liberation pushes the limits of skillful desires to see how far they can go. And then at some point, have to let them go completely. So there are desires that are skillful. We need to understand what true happiness, true contentment, true well-being is, and how to develop the path to freedom, the eightfold path. So it's not to say desire are bad, desires are bad. The Buddha said that it is better to live in a palace and be free of desire than to be in a cave consumed by the wanting mind. So it's really the freedom of the mind, not the surroundings, not the objects. So not about getting rid of all desire, but seeing that desire for things, objects, doesn't bring lasting happiness. Joseph has this great line I've always liked as soon as I heard him say it. Restraint allows us to see the impermanent nature of desire. We think we've got to have it, we've got to get it, but just holding back a little bit, what happens to the desire? Any desire, the desire you had last year for whatever, where is it now? The desire you had yesterday, where is it now? Joseph Goldstein writes in Hooked, um, Renunciation is not a particularly appreciated cultural value. And even if we are somewhat aware of its value, it may not be all that inspiring. In St. Augustine's famous prayer, he says, Dear Lord, make me chaste but just not yet. (laughs) But another way of talking about renunciation is through understanding it as non-addiction. Whereas renunciation feels like a burden or a sense of deprivation, non-addiction implies freedom, which is something all of us want. Non-addiction, I think that's a great way of talking about the non-grasping. So we can work with this force of mind of heart in our practice. Sayadaw Tejaniya um, has a great set of steps to really look at what's going on in any moment in the mind. And he has us first ask the question, am I aware? And I love this question because if you can get it together to ask the question, the answer tends to be yes. If you were totally unaware, mindless, you wouldn't remember to ask the question. So am I aware? Hopefully, yes. What am I aware of? So what is the attention noticing? What am I aware of? What's, what's in the forefront? or What's in the field that I'm aware? It doesn't have to be what's only strong and predominant, but what's subtle, what's neutral can also be included. What am I aware of? And then what is my relationship to that? And basically, and even if you don't say all these words, the basic uh, inquiry is, Am I wanting something to happen, holding on to something? Or am I not liking something, pushing something away, wanting to get rid of something? So these are the two forms of desire, right? Pushing, holding on, pushing away. Or am I, or was I, hopefully in this moment there's a little clarity, was I completely spaced out, not knowing what's happening? That's delusion. This is greed, aversion, delusion, the kalesas, but it's all in this same field of the second noble truth. Or when we ask, what's my relationship to that? Maybe what we notice is equanimity or acceptance or calm. Basically, non-greed, non-clinging. And this is the heart of the practice. Guy will talk more about this tomorrow night. The heart of our practice is the opposite, is the ending of craving, the ending of clinging, non-clinging. Joseph Goldstein also talks about this passage in the suttas that he always read and loved and kind of, you know, held it close. But then one day he realized, oh, these are practice instructions. 
<laughs> and then he took this as his practice. Nothing whatsoever is to be clung to as I, me, or mine. And he really said, this is what I do most of the time in my, my practice. Notice the mind that's clinging or not clinging. If it is clinging, can I let go? If I am let go, can I abide in non-clinging? It is clinging or not clinging. This is the heart of the path. This passage goes on to say, whoever has heard this truth has heard all the teachings. Whoever practices this truth has practiced all the teachings. Whoever has realized this truth has realized all the teachings. Nothing whatsoever is to be clung to as I, me, or mine. So this is how we practice to actually abandon or let go of the craving that causes suffering. And I heard someone reframe the Four Noble Truths. Again, I think Guy was saying, you know, it can sound a little dreary or glum, you know, suffering or suffering. But as he said, the Buddha never, the Buddha said that the Four Noble Truths are only accompanied by joy and delight. But we can actually reframe them as a, as, as a path leading to happiness. So the First Noble Truth, there is the truth of happiness, that happiness is possible. There's a cause for happiness, which is non-greed, non-craving, non-attachment. It's possible to abide in happiness, which is what the end of craving is actually like. And there's a path that leads to the to happiness, and that's the Eightfold Path. Same teaching, just flipping them around, but that's really what's pointing to. And so... The cause for the ending of craving, which is the third noble truth, is the Eightfold Path. It's this beautiful um, teaching, this beautiful wheel that unfolds. So the Eightfold Path is the cause. What is the effect? Again, we'll talk, Guy will talk more tomorrow night. Nibbana, the end of suffering, uh, the, the uprooting of greed, aversion, and delusion. But we don't want to wait until final, complete nibbana, um, arhantship. This is something we can know here and now. And you have probably, I'm sure, all have known these moments of peace, of release, of non-clinging. When the mind lets go of something, when it loses its entanglement, when it recognizes with clarity and conviction that... Um, letting go brings more happiness than trying to hold on. As someone said, suffering is rope burn. You know, it's holding on to something that's moving and going. If we hold on, we suffer. Let go and the rope just passes through because that's the nature of experience. And I don't want to preempt too much what Guy's going to talk about uh, tomorrow, but just as a kind of, what do they call them, the trailer or something. You, but you can't talk about suffering and the cause of suffering without pointing to the possibility for all of us of experiencing non-suffering. So I really love these words from Buddhadasa, who I think someone has already mentioned, Ajahn Buddhadasa, Thai forest meditation master, Guy and Carol both studied with him, very influential um, in the Thai forest system. You know, thousands of people would come hear him teach, but he was a bit of a, a renegade, a bit of an iconoclast. And he often gave teachings that were against the grain of the time. And so he wrote this great little booklet called um, Nibbana for Everyone. And again, this, you know, Nibbana, it was considered, oh, only the Arhant, the Buddha, and, you know, these. Uh, precious few beings, he said, no, Nibbana for everyone. And he talked about temporary Nibbana. He said, any defilements which have arisen cease when their causes and conditions are finished. Although it may be a temporary quenching, merely a temporary cool, temporary coolness, it still means Nibbana, even if only temporarily. Thus, there's a temporary Nibbana for those who has still have some defilements they can't avoid. This, indeed, is the temporary nibbana that sustains the lives of beings who are still hanging on to defilement. Unfortunately, that's us. Anyone can see that if the defilements existed day and night without any pause or rest, no life could endure it. If it didn't die, it would go crazy and die in the end. 
Whenever finding coolness in your experience, mark that coolness firmly in your heart and breathe out and in. Breathing in is cool. Breathing out is cool. In, cool. Out, cool. Do this for a little while. This is an excellent lesson which will help you to become a Nibbana Kamo. Nibbana Kamo. A lover of Nibbana. More quickly. (coughs) These instincts will develop in an enlightened way more than if you don't practice like this. Natural Nibbana, the unconscious quenching of defilement, will occur more often and easily. This is the best way for the mind to help nature, to help this natural progression. So he says, if we were constantly bombarded by the defilement, I don't actually like this word, the torments of mind, greed, aversion, and delusion, if we were constantly bombarded by those, we'd go crazy, we couldn't survive. All of us know these moments of peace and ease. The practice is, as he points to, is to recognize those, to know grasping and non-grasping, craving and non-craving. And again, these surroundings are so (coughs) inviting for that. Yes, we can crave after going for a walk and being in nature, but you can't crave nature. You can't (coughs) certainly hang on to it. You can't claim it as I or mine. So the mind just naturally lets go and opens. We need to notice those moments of non-grasping. That is what informs us. That is what is onward leading. And that is what allows this whole beautiful path to unfold to more peace and more freedom and more ease. So, as usual, we like to just let the words settle for a few moments before we move into the activity of the walking meditation. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.